Uh, good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Well, this is a good week to remember Shakespeare, the uh, arguably the greatest of uh, English uh, writers, poets, playwrights. I mean, this is the week he was born, baptized, and in fact died. So if we're, if we're ever going to talk about Shakespeare, uh, this week in April is a good, chance, good time to do it. And the person to talk with about Shakespeare is Joseph Pierce. Joseph, Joseph is senior editor with the Augustan Institute and the author of several books uh, in, in dealing with Shakespeare, everything from the quest uh, for Shakespeare, the Bard of Avon and the Church of Rome, to um, Shakespeare on Love, to uh, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, where he analyzes uh, three of the plays of Shakespeare from a Catholic perspective. And he's also done the series, The Quest for Shakespeare, uh, on EWTN. And Joseph, good to have you back here. It's good to be back, Al. So this is a good week to talk about Shakespeare, right? Those dates are all right? Absolutely all right, yeah. He was born on uh, St. George's Day, April 23rd. He died on St. George's Day, April 23rd, and was baptized on April 25th, uh, the uh, St. Mark's Day. Now, he is—how well accepted is it among academics that Shakespeare was either himself a Catholic or was influenced with, or by Catholic sympathies? Yeah. Well, I think that basically uh, that the tide has swung pretty uh, dramatically over the last 15 or 20 years uh, towards uh, a general acceptance that Shakespeare was raised in a devoutly and defiantly Catholic home during a time of Catholic persecution. Uh, uh, and that the, the battle now is not so much uh, on, on that ground, because I think that ground has been largely conceded by the Secular Academy. Uh, the battle now is, is the extent to which Shakespeare remained a Catholic, or the extent to which he didn't. And of course, uh, the focus of much of my work is to show uh, from the evidence of his life and from the evidence from the text of his work uh, that he remained a Catholic, um, at least in, in sympathy, but I actually think in secret practice throughout the, the, uh, the, all of his life. Uh, critics like Harold Bloom said, uh, Shakespeare seems too wise to believe anything, political or religious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, the absurdity of that statement, really, I mean, you know, uh, so, so someone who's wise has no beliefs at all? I mean, what does that mean? I mean, it's such an absurd statement that it really doesn't even need, need comment except to say that Howell Bloom should not be taken seriously. <laughs> when dealing with Shakespeare, certainly. Um, at that time, uh, it, w- it would not have been easy for Shakespeare to either declare himself a Catholic or even to do, quote, religious drama, right? Yeah, I mean, we need we need to a, a, a good analogy, I think, for 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 moderns such as us is uh, is the Soviet Union. Now, if you, you had a you had a, a, um, an active dissident community in the in the Soviet Union, we think perhaps of Alexander Solzhenitsyn and others. But but there, there's very little paper trail being left behind because a paper trail just uh, uh, enables you to be arrested and, and and thrown into prison. So that's the challenge that that we face in in looking uh, uh, at the Catholics in Elizabeth's. England because Catholicism was illegal. Uh, To be a Catholic priest in England was not only illegal, it was punishable by death. To harbor a Catholic priest in England uh, by any member of the laity was also punishable by death. So, in other words, that if you're going to um, practice your faith, you have to do it uh, in, in, if you like, in a secret fashion. And as regards contemporary religion and politics, it was illegal 
to talk about contemporary religious and politics on the stage. So Shakespeare got around this by setting his, um, his plays in foreign countries, which, of course, are Catholic, or in the past. Uh, you only have to go back in his time, half a century, uh, and all of England prior to that was, was Catholic. So mm-hmm, history mm-hmm. plays or plays set on the continent it allowed uh, Shakespeare to uh, have his dramas in the Catholic milieu without breaking the law. Interesting. So, I mean, so the Catholic Church was really operating underground uh, from about the middle of the 16th century on. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, basically, you know, that... that uh, Catholic priests, particularly and especially Jesuit priests, were being smuggled into England and were living, um, you know, in, in disguise, disguised as gardeners or school teachers, uh, obviously not uh, wearing uh, priestly clothes because it would be instant arrest, torture, and death. So, you know, that we have to be aware of that. It was an, a time of, of priest holes uh, and, and such like. So, this is this is the world in which Shakespeare is living and writing. Yeah, I, I think this is, it's difficult for us to understand that because when we think of England, of course, we think about the nation that we have a special, rela- here in the United States, we have a special relationship with England. We we feel as though we derive our sense of rights um, from them, our language. And so it's difficult to remember that uh, at one time, there was, and for centuries, there was such severe brute force persecution of Catholics, um, that and that Catholics were unable to uh, declare themselves citizens, they were unable to vote. And it's just hard, I think it's hard for people to think of uh, England being in that condition. I think the Soviet Union analogy is a good one. Uh, how would Solzhenitsyn have written um, freely uh, about many topics uh, had he stayed in the Soviet Union? Right, exactly. He, he was forced out in the end, and he couldn't write freely. He was all, his works were all in what was called Samizdat, which is basically in, in our hand-copied manuscript, mm-hmm. because nothing could be published there. I mean, uh, what I would say about England, you know, obviously I'm biased, being an Englishman, but, <laughs> but you know, the Magna Carta was from Catholic England, so that, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the English law, the English legal system, uh, goes back to the pre-Reformation times. Uh, and I would say that we should sympathize with those heroic Catholic Englishman that for 300 years of persecution uh, stayed defiantly with the faith, and that's the England to which I owe my loyalty, not the England of uh, of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I and the other tyrants. As you know, Joe, I just got back from England visiting my my daughter, son-in-law at Oxford, and we visited London, and thanks to you, I was able to meet with several uh, Catholics uh, in England. And I, I have to say, the one thing I came back with, it was a great trip, but one thing I came back with is that American Catholics are simply unaware of uh, England, English Catholicism and its history and what we owe English Catholicism. And I, I am interested in somehow helping build some bridges here intellectually so that uh, American Catholics can better understand uh, what we owe uh, members of our faith who suffered uh, for the faith during those terrible years, and which, and right up and through nineteenth uh, and even into the twentieth century, a bit. So, I'll talk with you about yeah, that project. Well, obviously, it would make us allies on an, yet another level. Uh, Al, obviously, we've been allies on all sorts of levels over the years, and <laughs> right. that's a great blessing to me. But obviously, one of my preoccupations, if you like, of of my apostolate is is to try to make this Catholic England better known to. Uh, yep. To Catholics over here, so yeah, if you and I could uh, could work together with that, I would consider that a, an honor and a blessing. Yes, well, I'll, we'll get together on that because I'll tell you, it was heartbreaking to see so much Christian presence uh, 
in Oxford, and yet to also know that uh, at the time that Benedict XVI uh, went there to uh, beatify uh, John Henry Newman, that there was actually resistance uh, to the Pope's visit. So there's still some anti-Catholic prejudice that remains, although they did put up a, a plaque for Newman, I guess, at St. Mary's there, uh, which I thought was Yeah, surprising. I mean, I think, I think I mean, that thinking back of that and remembering that uh, historic uh, trip to England, Benedict Sixteenth. what I thought was amazing was the, the, the miracle that accompanied his arrival, because prior to that, the secular media uh, and the secular fundamentalists and the remnant of the Protestant fundamentalists were all united in, you know, we don't want this Pope over here for right. all their particular agendas, and yet when he actually arrived, there was this uh, just groundswell. They said nobody would arrive to, 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 to visit, to see him on his, uh, as he traveled around London and to the various masses, uh, and uh, they were all incredibly well attended, and I think everybody was surprised, and somehow or other, um, Pope Benedict, and one has to think it's the grace of God, um, managed to win the heart of even uh, many of the, the skeptics, and I, I was astonished at the workings of divine grace uh, in during that trip, yeah. and it's one, a very special memory of, of mine. Yes. Uh, let's uh, return to Shakespeare here. He's, um, it's well accepted that he was raised in a Catholic family, in a defiant Catholic family, a family that wasn't laying down. Uh, he was born, I think, 1564, so this is, this is just after the Catholic Church has been forced underground. And um, did he have any aspirations to priesthood? Well, not that we're aware. We, we, the, the, one, the one thing that uh, we don't know about Shakespeare, uh, and it's one of the most uh, enigmatic things, is exactly where he did receive his education, because um, the most likely uh, place would be Stratford Grammar School, um, which would have uh, been, been a very good education, and most of his school teachers, or many of his school teachers, were, were Catholics. There's been some great research done on that. But if, if he didn't get his education from there, he would have gone to the, uh, abroad, which is where many uh, Catholic youngsters went abroad, and that's where many of them did become inspired to uh, for the vocation to the priesthood. But there's no evidence that Shakespeare was one of them. If he did uh, study abroad, um, he uh, returned home again um, as a layman. He got married, he had children. So I don't think there's any evidence that Shakespeare ever felt he had a vocation for the priesthood. Uh, any connection with figures like Father Campion? Well, yes. I mean, there, there, there's... there's um, circumstantial evidence that Shakespeare may well have known uh, St. Uh, St. Edmund Campion uh, shortly before Campion's arrest and torture and execution. Shakespeare would have been a teenager uh, working as a schoolmaster in the north of England. There's been quite a lot of, uh, done on these so-called lost years. Uh, I write about it in my books, but I, I put more emphasis upon the, the stronger evidence that Shakespeare would have known uh, a later Jesuit who was an almost exact contemporary of Shakespeare called St. Robert Southall, um, oh, and right. uh, St. Robert Southall basically ministered to in, uh, London's Catholics, of course Shakespeare was in London most of the time during this period, and uh, had um, St. Robert Southall had the Earl of Southampton, who was Shakespeare's patron, as, um, as uh, well, sorry, the Earl of Southampton had Southall as his personal confessor, and I think it's entirely possible, uh, bearing in mind how close uh, Shakespeare was to the Earl of Southampton, and how 
relatively small the Catholic community was in London, which was the heart of the beast, that, that Shakespeare would have known Southall well, and it's entirely possible, if that's the case, that he had St. Robert Southall as his own personal confessor, which is a, uh, a fascinating uh, prospect. Oh, and, and uh, his, his wedding, was that presided over by a priest? Yeah, basically, Shakespeare seems to have gone to a great deal of, of, of trouble to, if you like, circumvent existing laws, which which said that you have to get married in your local parish, where you know, the, the parish boundaries in which yeah. you live. Uh, and he managed to, uh, to find a way of getting around that to actually get uh, married in a nearby parish where there was a, a Marian priest. In other words, uh, priests that were ordained under the reign of Mary Tudor, okay. who were known to be Catholics, sympathetic to Catholicism. So in other words, he went to quite great pains to actually be married by a Catholic. Okay. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Joseph Pierce, senior editor of the Augustine Institute, the author of a, really are a great literary biographer and a student of Shakespeare as well. His book, um, Quest for Shakespeare, then uh, Shakespeare's Eyes, also Shakespeare on Love, takes a look at um, the, the, the question of Shakespeare's worldview, uh, especially his Catholic connection, and the degree to which he thought and imagined uh, as a Catholic. Uh, and I think, you know, despite the anti-Catholic bias that pervaded uh, Shakespeare's world, uh, Joseph has been able to discover expressions in Shakespeare's writings of Catholic faith, Catholic sympathies, um, especially for those suffering under the anti-Catholic reign of uh, Queen Elizabeth, King James I. And what do people say to those obvious Catholic sympathies, Joe? Well, I mean, I think that for, for Catholics, there's a great deal of um, consolation and, uh, and fortitude that we can actually gain from knowing that this great writer um, stayed true to the faith in a time of, of, of great persecution. Of course, for those admirers of Shakespeare, and, and there, of course, are, are, are many of, of all, of all uh, shades of opinion who are opposed to Christianity in general and Catholicism in particular, the discovery of more and more evidence of Shakespeare's Catholicism is actually not welcome and actually seen by many as a threat. And we should also bear in mind that there are many, many numerous uh, hundreds of academics out there in the Secular Academy that have built reputations <laughs> upon a misreading and misunderstanding of Shakespeare. Yes. So the, the, the increasing evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism is basically bringing their scholarly, scholarly um, status into uh, disrepute and into question. So uh, th there's no doubt at all that in the Secular Academy, the emergence of the evidence for the, Sha for the Catholic Shakespeare is, is indeed uh, an unwelcome threat. Yeah. I mean, because it does call into, it calls into question the reputation of many academics i mean and yeah i mean if if, if if academics have built reputation on a false reading of shakespeare where basically what many of them do is just turn shakespeare into a 21st century uh you know secular relativist in other words somebody who mirrors their own prejudices uh, and then you can show that that just isn't the case from just you know objective evidence from the text of the plays and from the biographical evidence of shakespeare's life then it does really pull the rug out from under them so it's, it's a very unwelcome uh branch of scholarship that 
this this evidence we're 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 getting for Shakespeare's Catholicism. Now, you uh, in in through Shakespeare's eyes, you take a look at three uh, plays of Shakespeare and uh, analyze the Catholic content, uh, draw attention to the Catholic content or the the Catholic dynamic of those plays. Let me ask you before we go to those about the the poem, the uh, the Phoenix in Turtle. Is is that authentically Shakespeare? Oh yes, absolutely authentically Shakespeare. I don't think anybody doubts that. What what is it? What is in question is what on earth it's about because uh, you know it's very much a it's very much a conundrum. It's a puzzle, um, and uh, you know there, there's been some good scholarship done um, by John Klaus and others. Um, the, connecting the Phoenix and the Turtle to Catholic martyrs, particularly St. Anne Lyne, who was martyred, and, and uh, William Byrd, who wasn't martyred but was a defiant recusant um, at, at, at the time that Shakespeare's around, um, and allusions to other Jesuits, uh, to Jesuit priests such as Robert Southall. So it, it's seen as, a, uh, as, as a, if you like, a cryptic uh, allusion to, uh, to, to the situation of Catholics in England. Uh, the, the phoenix, of course, is a bird that rises from the dead. The, um, uh, the turtle is the turtle dove, um, of course, an image of, of the Holy Spirit and mm-hmm. also of, uh, of, of sanctity. Uh, what is his, in his plays, what role do Catholic clergy play? What's his general attitude towards clergy? Yeah, well, basically, the, the, the Catholic clergy no, are normally portrayed uh, very uh, positively. I mean, not in the sense that they're all, all depicted as, as, as saints, but uh, in many plays, I think perhaps of, of, of uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, the, the priest characters are the ones that convey whatever wisdom is there in a play basically okay. characterized for the most part by the absence of wisdom. And it's, if, if you like, it's, it's the failing to heed those words of timely wisdom that, that, that caused the, uh, the debacle or the tragedy within the plot. So generally speaking, monks, uh, religious sisters, we think perhaps of measure for measure, um, you know, the depictions of religious sisters, monks, priests, um, are astonishingly positive considering that, that the time in which Shakespeare is writing, because most of his contemporaries, uh, other playwrights, were just writing uh, very knee-jerk, negative, stereotypical attacks upon, upon Catholicism in general and the clergy in particular. So Christopher Marlowe, uh, he, he depicts Catholics and Catholic clergy as villainous? Well, I mean, Marlowe's an, an, an enigma in himself because, uh, you know, he seems to have been sympathetic to Catholicism, um, seems perhaps to have converted to Catholicism, and yet he also seems to have been a, a spy, so we don't know to what extent <laughs> any conversion was genuine or merely cynical. Wow. Yeah. Certainly in a play like The Jew of Malta, he it seems to display cynicism, and yet, you know, in Dr. Faustus, he also seems to display a sense of, uh, of repentance for, for, the, for the sort of life that he's lived. Um, so it's... He's a difficult character, not 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 one to be trusted. That's for sure. Okay, gotcha. Um, take Friar Lawrence and Romeo and Juliet, which I, I know you've written on Romeo and Juliet. It, it, is he a figure that ends up offering the wisdom that you're referring to earlier? Is he the one that gives the moral counsel? The, uh, yeah, I mean, what we find in, in the depiction of Friar Lawrence and Romeo Julia is Shakespeare at his best. In other words, he doesn't. Uh, Shakespeare gives us real characters in in, in their, 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 the fullness of their complexity. In other words, not just two dimensional figures. So the 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 words of wisdom, the words of Christian philosophy and morality in the play, uh, which we, we can see are quite clearly um, what's lacking in the characters, and, and that's the problem, are given by Friar Lawrence. Okay. 
But, you know, in, in, an, in a rather naive effort to bring peace between the families, he, he becomes embroiled in, in an effort to, uh, to bring reconciliation through the marriage of Romeo and Juliet, which, would, which was against canon law at the time. Mm-hmm. So he was being disobedient. And at the end of the play, we see him as a, a, a repentant figure, as one who apologizes for his sins, uh, is willing to accept and embrace whatever punishment comes for his rolled in the tragedy uh, but we have the final judgment on him uh coming from uh, uh the prince who says we still have known thee as a holy man as a holy man in, other yeah. words, in spite of everything you are a holy man and everyone knows you as such so that's yeah. the final judgment of friar lawrence in the play so he admits his complicity uh he re- and repents <laughs> he's ready to receive punishment and then he's uh exculpated by the prince Exactly, he's forgiven. Uh, if yeah. you like, absolved. If you if you if you want if you want to use that phraseology, sure. uh, and of course that's the fu- that's the final judgment of the prince, who, if in many ways, as he winds the play up and brings all the loose ends together, is the final judgment of the po- uh, of the poet of Shakespeare himself. So he, he's depicted to us in Friar Lawrence, you know, a, a, a man who perhaps is guilty of uh, a naivete uh, in his uh, idealism and perhaps even cowardice but is uh, very aware of those flaws and, and confesses and is forgiven for them. Okay. Let's, uh, let's take Friar Francis from Much Ado About Nothing. He's not as long-winded as uh, Friar Lawrence, but he plays a pivotal role. How do you regard him? Much Ado About Nothing, one of those comedies I don't know very well, Al, so okay. you're going to have to enlighten <laughs> me more, and I don't think I know enough about it to actually say anything eloquent. Well, I think he's, he it seems to me to be the pivotal figure that moves the play from uh, tragedy to its comic resolution. So uh, I, I just, I'll leave it there so we won't go into it, but he interrupts, uh, what happens is he, he interrupts the proceedings at one point to defend the innocent hero, and uh, it ends up defending the maiden, calling on his experience as a confessor and a confidant. And uh, uh, well, I, I've never, I've never written a study much about nothing. I think I've heard it once, so I'm not an expert, and I'm very uh, happy to have been enlightened. And it's obviously uh, yet another piece of evidence that I can pick up and write on at some point. I think so. Um, I, I have to confess, uh, I'm more a student of the movie than I am of the play. So. <laughs> <laughs> let me uh let's go on how did he treat sacraments well um whenever the sacraments are treated in uh in the plays they're treated with a catholic reverence um we have the confession scene in romeo and juliet um we have um uh, the in in um, the Merchant of Venice, uh, the imagery surrounding the Blessed Sacrament in the wonderful speech of Lorenzo, uh, where he likens the stars to the to the pattern uh, during the Mass. Um, so uh, wherever wherever the sacraments are are uh, alluded to, and of course they're not uh, alluded to explicitly, um, except where we have an authentic Catholic um, setting to do it. Uh, but wherever they are alluded to, it, it's always positive. And in fact, there's a there's a if, if any of your listeners have the opportunity, there's a wonderful book by two German scholars called Mutschmann and, and Ventersdorf, uh, and there's a section in that book about Shakespeare's use of uh, or, or, or his depiction of the sacraments in his works. Very good. Now, uh, what in the, the plays that you examined? Um, uh, I think uh, King Lear uh, was one of them. Uh, what what did you find? Uh, most compelling? 
Well, about, about King Lear, the, 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 the most important thing about King Lear, and of course this is something which is universally applicable in all times, including our own, but perhaps particularly applicable in Shakespeare's time, uh, is that we, A, have to uh, embrace suffering, uh, and that suffering is the path to, um, should we say, spiritual growth. But also, and within that, we see in the character of Cordelia, one who is asked basically to render unto Caesar the things that are God's and refuses to do so and is sent into exile, disinherited and sent into exile for her refusal basically to, to render unto Caesar the things that are God's. And of course, for in Shakespeare's time, when that's exactly what, what was being demanded of the Catholics, that they, the, they, the state religion imposed by Henry VIII and carried on by Elizabeth I and James I um, was basically compulsory. That was the only uh, acceptable religion of the state religion and the Catholics in refusing to bow the knee be, before uh, Caesar were punished so in, the, the, in the, the beautiful character of Cordelia in King Lear we see that we also see you know, the hope if you like that, that King Lear sees the error of his own ways and I think Shakespeare always perhaps hoped that, uh, that the, the monarch would listen to the place and learn the lessons and uh, alas that wasn't to be the case Now what about in Hamlet is there a presentation of purgatory there, and would that have been significant? Oh yes, absolutely. Basically, the the the, the ghost in Hamlet um, uh, announces that he um, is in purgatory uh, because he was killed uh, in the fullness of his sins without having the opportunity through the last sacrament, you know, the last rites or through the sacrament of confession to have his sins forgiven prior to his death because he was murdered uh, he's now in purgatory now the, the question is you know is the ghost an to use um, Hamlet's own words Hamlet goes to gr great trouble within the play to prove to himself and indeed to us as the audience that the, Hamlet, that the ghost is an honest ghost if the ghost is an honest ghost, then he is in purgatory. And, of course, if purgatory exists, that is itself a vindication of the Catholic uh, perspective because purgatory was effectively, uh, the belief in purgatory was effectively outlawed in, in Shakespeare's time. Hmm. So I think it's important, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to look for the Catholic Shakespeare, then going back to what you said originally, you've got to keep in mind that he's writing in a place where it was illegal to uh, flaunt one's Catholic identity, and he had to walk this tightrope. And I think that's critical. Now, you, again, I want to emphasize Joseph's books, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, The Quest for Shakespeare, Shakespeare on Love, all available in the EWTN Religious Catalog. Joseph, thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure as always, Al.